let's start. Yeah, let's, let's get it going. All right. Today, I'm from A to Ziggy. All the Mad Men. Welcome to From A to Ziggy. This is the podcast in which we listen to every David Bowie song in alphabetical order. My name is Thomas. My name is Travis. And today we're talking about All the Mad Men from The Man Who Sold the World, 1970. So uh, this is another one of those songs that I wasn't super, super familiar with because I never had this album when I was younger. And holy crap, it's now absolutely one of my favorite songs. It's amazing. Um, this song's got a lot of twists and turns, and it's dark and interesting and heavy. It's, so it's about crazy people, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's basically if One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was a song, this would be that song. Yeah, pretty much. This is told from the point of view of a person who is in a mental institution, um, and he likes it that way. Yeah, a central theme to a lot of the song is basically if I'm surrounded by people who are as crazy as I am, am I really that crazy? Right. It reminds me kind of of, uh, did you ever see Alien 3? I think I saw it a long time ago. Uh, when the prisoner Gallic, uh, Doctor Who, no, I from Withnail and I, he says, uh, he tells them, in an insane world, an insane man would be considered sane? And then uh, the doctor says, yeah, uh, thanks for that very insightful observation. But this is, this is like that. So from his perspective, he's, you know, totally sane. And the world outside is the scary, insane world. Yeah. Um, so I guess we should just dive right into the lyrics first, because sure. there's a lot of content. There's a lot to get into. I mean, this was the early days where no one really knew what to do about me people with mental illness. It was a complete mystery at the time. So really the only solution was just to send people away to these institutions, these large buildings isolated from everybody else. Yeah, right. Today we think of it as barbaric. Yeah, but um, this just was how it was. We just didn't have an understanding of what, you know, how to help these people. So they just sort of swept them under the rug. Yeah. Kept them out of the way. And now, so this comes from a really personal place right. for David Bowie, um, yeah. as he had a half-brother who was schizophrenic. Right. Terry yeah. Burns, who was a major influence on Bowie's life. He introduced him to uh, Jack Kerouac and uh, just got him into uh, a lot of the things, a lot of the culture that would influence Bowie as he was growing up. So yeah, so he was institutionalized. He was a ward of the Cane Hill Asylum, which is this old Victorian era hospital. And he would occasionally come over like for weekend visits to visit Bowie and his wife while Bowie was working on this album. And so this was, this was Bowie's kind of tribute to him, to his brother, who had, who had been such a big influence on him during his teenage years. Now here he was sort of locked up, more or less. But was he really, you know? It's like, yeah, did he, I, I don't know how Terry Burns felt about being at Cane Hill, but if he's anything like the narrator in this song, he's you know, perfectly happy. So eventually he ends up escaping and in 1985 he escapes and commits suicide. Right. But I, I mean, I guess even then you can kind of debate if it's because he was that just miserable in there and it was that bad or if it was this like feeling of I'm the only sane one and I'm surrounded by these other people who believe they're only the same, the only sane one and it's so frustrating and yeah, who knows? Yeah, it's a mystery. Yeah, just different, different times. 
yeah, he's someone that now would maybe, you know, be in a in a in some kind of home where there'd be care around, but there you know, it would be more getting help than just getting pushed out of the way. Because he, you know, in this song, he does talk about the things that you, I guess, embracing these things that are thrust upon you when you're institutionalized. Just don't set me free. I'm as heavy as can be. Just my Librium and me and my EST makes three, which refers to uh, Librium, which was uh, the medication. Anti-anxiety med medication. Yeah. It's a, a barbiturate, it looks like. Uh, what was it called? Uh, it's got I, a big I, long name. Yeah, I looked it up on Chlordiazepoxide. Um, and then EST, of course, is electroshock therapy, which I guess they do still use today, but yep. is, uh, I assume, a lot more humanely done than it was back in the late 60s. Yeah, maybe. I mean, and it, they've rebranded it. Yeah. ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. But, I mean, it's basically the same thing. Yeah. And then lobotomy. Do they even still do lobotomies? I would assume there's no way they can still do lobotomies. I don't know. It's a pretty extreme treatment. Yeah. Um, I think they might still do it in like extreme cases. So yeah, lots of so he's he's sort of embraced, he's accepted these treatments that I don't know, from my perspective and I guess your perspective, they're sort of thrust upon him. But he seems not to mind, right? Um, the impression that I got as the song goes on and I felt like the music kind of mirrored this um this descent of it's like an acceptance. And maybe fooling your, you know, maybe it's gotten to this point where you've accepted it to the point that you quote unquote enjoy it, but not really. But as the imagery gets more vivid of what he's experiencing, the music just gets heavier and darker. And then as he's, uh, the very last chorus where he's, you know, once again singing, he'd rather stay here with all the madmen than perish with the sad men roaming free. But the guitars and the recorders and everything are just like this. It's almost like he's just made the full descent into madness, and but just embracing that descent. Yeah, right. It's it sounds more to me more so than say enjoying, you know, the electroshock and the drugs and the uh, yeah, I guess the body. Yeah, it it's really... it's more like uh, this is what I need to keep my life the way it is, the way that I'm comfortable living. It's the alternative to the word that he uses in the, that last chorus, perishing with the sad man. Yeah. Go out there and you'll die. Or, or at least, you know, in some sense, you'll, uh, you know, cease to be you. Roaming free, he says with irony. Yeah, you know what? It kind of made me think of The Matrix. Oh, yeah? Where the quote-unquote madmen in the institution are basically the people who took the red pill. And they just see the world for as it is. And they just, they'd much rather be seen as crazy madmen than just the mindless sad drones out there in society right or are they well yeah because because um, it says something about how they tell him that it's real they uh they take my brain away and turn my face around to the far side of town uh, and then they tell me that it's real then ask me how i feel this is the counseling sessions i guess how do you feel but uh is is that real is that what's real he's saying it's like is that what i have to look forward to once i'm quote-unquote cured, is uh, to go out there, what's he say? He describes the, outs the world outside the asylum as the place where thin men stalk the streets. So he, he's, he's here in the, uh, in the asylum. He's able to escape from uh, these stalkers, these scary figures out in the world. So we mentioned uh, Cane Hill. So this is where Bowie's brother was at. If you have the U.S. LP copy of The Man Who Sold the World, instead of Bowie in a dress, you're going to see a cartoon on the cover. 
And this cartoon depicts a John Wayne-looking guy uh, standing in front of this old Victorian building. This is Cane Hill Asylum. And the John Wayne cowboy poet has got a blank speech bubble coming out of his mouth, which I think was just like a censored... Something was censored there. Like, he originally said something. If you look it up, you'll find... You can find the... Uh, the artist has a webpage about this, and what he was supposed to be saying is, roll up your sleeves, take a look at your arms. Which, uh, drug reference, maybe? I'm not sure. Yeah, I... So the artist was um, Michael John Weller, and he's got a webpage where he talks about this, and it looks like it's been updated since Bowie died. There's, there's more in information there, and we'll put it in the show notes for this episode. But yeah, so that's Cane Hill on the cover of the album. This is the place that in the song he describes as the cellar, dark and grim, where a nation hides its organic minds. <laughs> uh, these are the natural people, the people in their natural state who really think real thoughts, uh, who aren't, who haven't succumbed to the illusions of uh, that society pushes on them towards, you know, societal norms or acceptable ways of behaving. This is where real people live, but they get sort of pushed down into the cellar and out of the way, swept under the rug. The madmen are really the sane ones, like it says in the last chorus. Yeah, so I think when I was a teenager, around the same time when The, the Matrix seems like uh, really heavy, deep philosophy, you know, you're, you're sort of confronted with challenging societal norms and so this was this was definitely a standout song for me yeah although i will admit that when i when i was listening to it i had that oh man this kind of reminds me of the matrix had that one of like all right am i too old to med, you know reference the matrix in terms of philosophy like i feel like by the time you're 19 or 20 you probably shouldn't do that anymore because it really is just at that you know i mean yeah it, it is a very it's got a lot of philosophy to it but it's you know, like when you reach a certain age, you just kind of like, oh, I feel like those kids that think they're a lot more philosophical than they are because they saw The Matrix one time. Mm. You, know, you know what I mean? Like, I still love it. It's one of my favorite movies ever. I, I love, think, love The Matrix, but... I think it's okay yeah. to bring it up as like a, as kind of a shorthand. Yeah. Know? It's like a primer. It's like Philosophy 101 condensed. Just as long as you don't mention the, don't bring up the sequels. But yeah, whenever I hear like a grown adult in a comp, like if they're trying to sound like they're really deep and philosophical, if they, if they reference The Matrix or Fight Club, I'm just like, dude, you're not 18 anymore. Right. Oh, tangent Which, aside. <laughs> no, wait, no, well this, no, this totally leads into the next thing because uh, speaking of philosophy, and by the way, tell that to yourself from five minutes ago when you, when you brought up The Matrix. <laughs> uh, I mentioned last, uh, on an episode before, I don't remember when, but that Nietzsche was going to come up. So I, I had this goal I was going to set for myself. Read Thus Spoke Zarathustra before we record All the Mad Men. And I'm pleased to report that I did not fulfill that goal. <laughs> Uh, because that, that was a completely unrealistic goal. However, I did pretend to read Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Googling uh, Nietzsche, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and Bowie. And that is how we do philosophy in the 21st century. That is how it's done. So I read this chapter. So this song refers to one of the chapters in Zarathustra. There's a whole lot of allusions to this chapter called The Tree on the Hill. 
And in it, Zarathustra encounters a youth who's standing under a tree. And he kind of shakes the tree, and the youth says, hey, who's there? And Zarathustra goes into some, he lays down some deep philosophy on the youth. He says, this tree it goes way up into the air, it uh, rises into the heights and into the light. Uh, the more vigorously the tree rises to the height and the light, the more vigorously do his roots struggle earthward, downward, into the dark and the deep, into the evil. The youth says, hey, that's just like, that's just like my soul, as you do. As you do. <laughs> um, the point being, this is the, the moral, I think, is that the youth is trying to set himself free from like society or something like that. And Zarathustra lays it down. No, you can't, you can't do that. Because the more, you, the more you try to aggrandize yourself, the higher up your branches reach, the further down your roots reach. And uh, you want to be way up high. But uh, at the same time, all of your bad impulses also thirst for freedom. And he says, thy wild dogs want liberty. They bark for joy in the cellar when thy spirit endeavoreth to open all prison doors. So basically, you've got all this evil stuff, uh, this base, like mundane nature. Uh, and if you set yourself free, all of that stuff is going to be free too. And he's seen many uh, a noble man try to achieve such heights. And they do, like, they become sort of uh, contemptuous of, of anybody else who's, like, trying to achieve the same thing. So basically, the further you get in your pursuit of any kind of greatness, the more you're going to want to isolate yourself from other people who are seeking similar greatness because it, maybe it diminishes your greatness if someone else is sharing that. Yeah, right. It's, so it's, it's all based, it's all propelled by fear. Uh, it's just fear and ego. Yeah, and ego. You know, and I guess that the first quote in there, maybe I was just misinterpreting it, but it kind of made me think about, so when you're talking about reaching the heights and the lights, but your roots go further... In order to reach the heights and lights, your roots must dig deeper into the, into the earth. Is it possible for, I mean, I'm sure people do it, but like, is it really possible for someone to create truly great art without having some sort of really deep torment? I mean, it's, that's like, a, you know, it's one of those questions is always art itself. Yeah, no, I think, I think not. Not. I mean, not, not realistically. I mean, no, yeah, it's that. Like it wouldn't have any value. It wouldn't have any resonance. But it seems like a lot of the, you know, there a lot of what we now consider great art came from people who, you know, had a bit of a dark, tormented side to them. Yeah, if there's not that aspect to it, it's, you know, pop fluff. Yeah. Um, yeah, so don't be so hard, Travis. Don't be too hard on uh, people who bring up The Matrix. Just don't be hard. <laughs> Stop being so judgmental. Yeah. Oh, I feel like we need to discuss the music in this song, too. So, previously we had done After All from this record, which, you know, it's got that, like, psych, you know, 60s psychedelic rock where, you know, it could be, like, something off of Sgt. Peppers or something. And this kind of started off the same way. It's, you know, it's mostly acoustic guitar and, just, you know, it has that kind of spacey feel to it in the beginning. And then it just completely takes a left turn and, and just gets really heavy and it's... Some it's quintessential Mick Ronson guitar. It's just so freaking heavy, and yeah. and then and I also appreciate the uh, when the guitars really kick in too. There's some recorder in the background, which at first listen, and I can't believe I'm referencing. 
We're only, what, like 10 songs deep or so. This is the second time I feel like I need to mention Willy Wonka because it totally reminds me of the whistle when he's summoning the Oopa Loopas. Oh, yeah, right. But yeah, it just gets Yeah, so that's an mad. odd touch from out of nowhere. Yeah. Those recorders. And, you know, and I was listening to it, I'm thinking, you know, if our music teacher when we were in school wanted us to not dismiss recorder, they probably should have just played this song. Because even though I wasn't, like, super into David Bowie when I was in, like, fifth grade... But I listen to a lot of grunge, and this song is really heavy, so... Yeah, there's a lot of power chords Yeah, that, that bit towards the end. So there's a good point Chris O'Leary puts in his book about the, the chord structure from the chorus into that bridge slash solo, the Mick Ronson solo, where he's using they're using the same kinds of chords that you would hear in flamenco. And he describes that part, the accompaniment during the solo, as being like bolero style so like if you know like uh, Ravel's bolero which is the only bolero I know because I'm not cultured <laughs> haven't studied flamenco um, but if you listen to bolero it's that sort of bump and it's the same sort of rhythm going on there and I, I thought was cool yeah and like after I listened to it I felt like I needed to just double check the dates when this was recorded or released versus when Black Sabbath's debut came out. And it was, I guess, recorded and released right around the same time, almost parallel. Because you listen to it and you're like, damn, how come, you know, I love Black Sabbath, but it's like, how come Black Sabbath gets all the credit for creating heavy metal when this song existed at the same time? Like, that really laid a template for a lot of the really heavy rock that was going to come in the next, you know, 20 to 30 years. Yeah, and it, yeah, and it, it also kind of reminded me a little bit too. I, I don't know if maybe he was kind of inspired by the structure of happiness is a warm gun, and that it never really does the same thing for very long. It kind of takes all these twists and turns and goes in ways that you don't expect it to. Songs like that, I love a song that has a lot of twists in it. I love thinking it's going one way and just completely like M Night Shyamalan wrote a song, kind of just like you know, oh my god, it was it was a heavy metal song the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> maybe more David Lynch than. Shyamalan? Yeah, maybe more David Lynch because it's, it's actually really good completely and dark. changes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, wait till we get to uh, the song that comes before this on this record, The Width of a Circle, which goes all over the place and has similar themes. Yeah, and then just the, the just how it crescendos at the end. It really does feel this like descent and this divine madness, like just reveling in your madness. Yeah, right. Talk about mad. It's this nonsense lyric. Zane, 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 ouvre le chaîne. Uh, Which I didn't realize how completely rusty my high school French was until I didn't realize that it meant open the dog. Open the dog. Until I looked it up. <laughs> open the dog. Clearly a reference to that Nietzsche passage again. The dog's in the cellar. Let them out. I don't know. Is this the, is this the chant of a madman in the, in the asylum? You know, just this nonsense? Or is this, is this what his nurses and uh keepers whatever you call them in the are, are telling him open the dogs you got to go out into the real world you're done here open i kind of picture dogs. like that's what he's saying when he's talking about standing there foot in hand talking to his wall i think that's what he's talking about when he's talking to his wall just repeating this just repeating this mantra over and over and then as he de descends further the more of the brain that they're taking away oh yeah he's, he's losing, they're taking they're literally he's literally losing his mind and then at the end, he's almost dancing around and delighting in this madness. Yeah, just declaring to everyone in the room, ouvre la chaîne, open the dog. Right. And then, yeah, it just fades out from there. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an experience of a song. There's a lot going on. It's a very eventful five and a half minutes. Yeah. 
five and a half minutes that interestingly enough, not really interestingly, got truncated for the single that they never released. And you can find it now on the five years box set, on that bonus disc of uh, assorted singles and things. Recall one. So there's a there's a radio edit, single edit of this song that kind of chops out some of the most interesting bits, including the part in the, the middle. Spoken word part? The spoken word part. Uh, which actually, that, that part was made for people who were listening to it in headphones. Like oh, it yeah. just kind of bounces back and forth. Yeah, the interplay. inside your brain. Interplay between the dialogue with the, the uh, television announcer coming up. Yeah. And then the little kid saying, It followed me home, Mom. Yeah. Again, the dog. Yeah. The, the reference to the dog. In the, in the cellar, dark and grim. Um, what else can we say about all the Mad Men? I think I hit pretty much all my points on it. But yeah, I mean, it, it's something that I'm thinking might happen. And I'm already starting to feel it, having done these last couple songs. It's going there's insane. a very good chance that Man Who Sold the World could end up bumping Hunky Dory off my favorite Bowie album, Pedestal. Yeah, I, I always say, like, there's always been a time, there's been a year or so, where every album was my favorite one. And this one, I think, was when I was 18, first starting college, and just everything was new, everything was different, and this was kind of my... Was this your red pill? Was this the one that kind of got you down that road? Right, this was my red <laughs> pill. This was the kind of anchor point to recognizing that the madness, the apparent madness of the world, all this new stuff I was experiencing was uh, perfectly normal, and that at least somebody kind of had the same picture I did of the world and how insane it is. So, uh... Um, let's, uh let's rate this song. Ratings. How do you rate All the Mad Men? Uh, I'm, I'm gonna give it four and a half doses of Librium. Four and a half doses of Librium. That's a pretty high score. Yeah, only because I feel like I'm sure something is gonna come along that I either wasn't previously familiar with or already have biases towards that I like a little bit better. Okay. But as of right now, yeah, this this was this was an eye opener of a song. Like this hits all the all of my sweet spots as far as what I love in a hard rock song. It's it's getting you excited. It gets me it's excited. Getting you a little too excited. Yeah. You I need four and a half doses of librium. I need some librium. To deal with that. Yeah. You need to be put down, basically. That's enough for a horse. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I've never tried. Yeah, I've, I've never, never tried. I've never tried Librium. Librium. Um I gotta rate this one pretty high too, but I'm only gonna go for a four. It's a great song. Uh, it's not quite the best song even on this album, but I think four doses of Librium is gonna do it for me. Oh, so maybe oh, I guess we'll save that for when the man when we get to the man who sold the world. Get to what? Say what? Discussing the amazing video that dropped over the weekend of oh, man. back with Nirvana. No, that's 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 timely, and we can't wait like two years to make yeah, that Facebook video. Yeah, yeah, this was awesome. So there was this video. You want to talk about it? So uh, I don't even remember who initially shared it. it. Just popped up on my feed. I'm sure it's popped up on a lot of other people's feeds. So there was a pre-Grammys party, and Beck got together with the three surviving members of Nirvana and covered the man who sold the world, and it was just incredible. I mean, you know, a video pops up on Facebook. It's like, oh, do you want to see your two favorite artists from your childhood cover an amazing artist? Yes, yes please. I do want to see that. Thank you. Um, and this is all kind of on the heels of also, if you, if you like us on Facebook, Beck has done a really good tribute to Bowie in the last week or so, just kind of putting out these little snippets of, of memories of listening to Bowie and meeting him. And um, yeah, definitely go on the Facebook page and check those out. But yeah, just it was 
a bit more true to the original than uh, than the cover that Nirvana had done. It was kind of a mashup of both versions. Yeah, yeah, just really well done. People and people need to look at that. Just the perfect the perfect set of artists to to do something like that. Yeah, like we keep saying, Beck. Beck and Bowie. Beck, yeah, is carrying the torch for Bowie. Um, at least I, I think so. I don't know what you think. I think so. I mean, I, admittedly, like, I've tailed off a little bit in listening to Beck because I, I, at least his newer stuff, although I did get Morning Face and it's incredible. I feel like we should be doing a Beck podcast. It might have to happen, actually. Um, but yeah, so there was a period where I, was, I really kind of fell off on him because I was so frustrated with the whole Scientology thing. Oh, yeah. But, and then I always had to remind myself, like, everything that's great has something terrible about it and just need to accept. Yeah, at some point you got to separate the art from the artist. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same. It's probably the same with every every artist yeah. that I appreciate or every person that I like. Yeah. There's going to be something that you disagree with. And you know what? That makes the world a much better place, mm-hmm. a place of variety and beauty. The world is nuanced. Yeah. It's hard. You can't be so black and white about things. There's yeah. a lot of gray. And then I risk, oh man, it just led me to another thing that's timely. Oh, this episode's going to be like 40 minutes long, but that's okay. People can commit sometimes. It's because it's a great song. Yeah. It reminds us of great things. Um, did you happen to see the Bowie tribute on the Grammys on Sunday? I missed it, and people keep talking about it. I'm sure it's all over the internets. Um, so was... It, was, it was a little frustrating. It was very well done. I think Lady Gaga was the right choice. The audience that's going to watch the Grammys will enjoy, who also carries the torch pretty well for what she does. Like, she was a good choice. But it was, it tried, they tried to do so much. They tried to hit on every persona throughout, and they were only doing like 15, 20 second snippets on the song. So it made it sound like it was just too frantic and trying to do too much at once. A manic montage. Yeah, but her costume was great. She did this really cool thing with some uh, with some lighting effects at the beginning, where it kind of like drew the lightning bolt from Aladdin Sane over her face, and it had a spider like crawling around on her face, like a spider from Mars. It was really well done, despite having to do too much. But it was probably because they felt like they had to do too much because there's just so much to get to, and is a you know it's a really hard artists to do a tribute to because there's just so many aspects and everyone who's watching that you know everyone who's watching the grammys appreciates a different bowie probably i mean there's there's a bowie for everybody if you're a bowie fan so you can't please all the people all the time so you gotta do the the bowie variety pack yeah you gotta you gotta the bowie fun dip yeah you gotta throw out the whipman sampler of bowie and so having to do what they had to do with the amount of time they had i thought they did a great job definitely worth checking out i'm gonna have to check that out I don't know much about Lady Gaga, because again, I don't really listen to anything other than David Bowie and Beck. <laughs> but I do, I only know her one song, Born This Way, which I always get confused with Madonna's. Because they're basically the exact song. same song. <laughs> um, but I do like, I do like her style. I like the way she looks, and I like, I like that she's basically a glittery, girly version of Marilyn Manson. Yeah. I, and I like that, so of course, Marilyn Manson had his glam period. Mm-hmm. Marilyn Manson was a huge fan of John Lennon. David Bowie was a huge fan of John Lennon. So it all ties back in. It all comes back together. It all has its roots in John Lennon. This has been the John Lennon podcast. <laughs> the John Lennon podcast where we sometimes talk about David Bowie. Uh, all right. All right. So I guess we'll wrap this up. Did we rate this? A lot yeah, we rated of, this yeah, we rated this thing. So I really hope people stuck around for this whole journey. There was a lot of content. I know this is, we're living in an age of 
short attention spans, but I think there's a lot of good stuff in here for everybody. But can you blame people for having short attention spans? Because this is basically a youth culture, youth-obsessed I'm guilty culture. I'm obsessed with youth. I want to be younger, and I want to listen to songs about young people. Young dudes, specifically. Oh, I see what you're doing. Not just some of the young dudes, either. <laughs> Not just a few of them. I want songs about all the young all dudes. All the young dudes. So why don't you come back, and we'll talk about that song. Yeah. Too. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Uh, check us out on the Facebook and on the Twitter, From Me to Ziggy. Uh, check out From Me to Ziggy.com. Uh, subscribe on iTunes. Listen up, leave a comment. Special thanks to, uh, I actually spoke to someone today who said that she's been listening to the podcast and enjoying it. So, Jamie from JP, thank you very much. We have um, a listener. We have a listener. Awesome. Thank so, you. hopefully, more to come. You guys are going to get in now because it's going to get really good. Uh, yeah, right. Now, what do we do? All right, I'm going to give up a <laughs> split. Um, so yeah, join us for all the young dudes. That's next time on From A to Ziggy. See, I'm gonna. How do we rate it? Um, doses of Librium. Opened up dogs. By the way, did you see? Uh, I saw Inside Out this weekend. Oh. Um, the, I saw that over the summer. The Pixar movie. Yeah. Uh, speaking of opened dogs, there's a very memorable scene of a dog opening up, which you wouldn't think to see yeah. in a children's movie or a family movie, but uh, you do, and it is hilarious. That was the Pixar movies they need to make more often. Like, I get so frustrated with the fact they just keep recycling the same crap over and over, like all the Cars and Planes movies. Oh, yeah. But, like, a good, smart movie. Maybe Pixar is one of those filmmaking entities like uh, Orson Welles. Or, uh, I'm going to go full pretentious here and <laughs> say, uh, Bunuel. <laughs> like, one for them, one for me. Like, do, do a money-making thing just to pay the bills and then do something really good yeah it makes sense i mean that's art and commerce hand in hand right you gotta make the franchise flick if you want to get the freedom to do the things you want to do right <laughs>